Welcome to another sermon podcast from All Souls Anglican Church, Cherry Hill, New Jersey. Thanks for joining us as we study God's Word together. These weekly sermons are part of the teaching ministry of our church. Have your Bible ready as we begin this week's sermon. And stay tuned when we finish at the end to find out more about us. Our text is Genesis 10, verses 1 through 32. Now, for guests who may be joining us this evening, last Sunday, we left Noah's family standing at his grave at the end of Genesis chapter 9. And with his death, we cross into Genesis chapter 10, the fifth section of the book itself, the generations of the sons of Noah. And what follows, as you heard, is a long list of names. It's a genealogy, the third one we've come across in our study of Genesis 1 through 11. Three times, once for Japheth, then for Ham, then for Shem, Moses tells us that this genealogy was composed according to their clans, their languages, their lands, and their nations. But have to admit what it creates for us in our minds is a baffling mishmash of ethnic, linguistic, geographical, and political boundaries. And if you get as far as verse 17, and you start to read of the descendants of Canaan, it looks more like the list for a bug controller. Hivites, Archites, Sinites, uh, Termites? So I'm going to guess that if you read the Bible, it's probable that you'll skip through Genesis 10 rather quickly. And I have to admit that I thought to do the same this evening because of what is going on right now. For the first time in a century, we're in the midst of a pandemic. And there's so many uncertainties and fear and people... uh, grimly focused, or frankly just being foolish, our awareness is heightened. So when I came to this text in our serial exposition of Genesis, I asked myself, now how in the world is a table of nations going to be any use to us right now? What comfort can it bring us? Well, uh, I thought it would be good to stay and to finish what we started. And I did it for two reasons. First, well, what's happening to us now is not a surprise to our Heavenly Father. It's not as if he was caught unawares when this corona mutation first began to spread. And second, because the Apostle Paul tells his young disciple Timothy that all scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching. And all, well, as I like to say, means all, including Genesis chapter 10. All right, then, I can hear you saying, uh, how do we start? Well, we start by making sure we take a close, careful reading of a text. Because, as faithful Christians, uh, when a text is unclear or difficult to understand, you get help in discerning its meaning by other texts in the Bible that are clear. So you take out your study Bible or a Bible dictionary, and you begin to read through it very carefully. And there's a, a name for this work of a clear text to a less clear text. It's called the 
analogy of faith. So, with all of this in hand, what can we ask? What does a close reading of the Table of Nations reveal to us? But when you start to do a close reading, you realize right away that there is a structured pattern here explaining the relationships one to another. And you start to realize that the pattern tells you what's important. And there are three things it tells you. It tells you the point of view of this table of nations, its scope, and its ultimate purpose. So let's begin, number one, with its point of view. Now, we learned in our study of Genesis 1 through 11 that God does not use scientific language to describe the world. It's because God uses phenomenological language to describe the world. In other words, how things appear to the observer. Almost all the events in Genesis 1 we saw are written as a description addressed to the observer, to ordinary people, including those without contact with modern science. So the Bible describes things as they appear to ordinary human observation. So it describes events in a way that are easily understood and observed by ordinary people. Scripture speaks in the language of the senses and not of theory because, well, God has a purpose in giving us the scriptures. He wants us to understand who he is, understand who we are, and what's happened to us. Now, there's a specialized technical view of the world, and there's the ordinary experiential view of the world. Both are legitimate. But tonight... We're not talking about geography or anthropology in Genesis 10. We're talking about a focus theologically. So what is its theological focus? The first is that we are all interrelated, all members of the same family of people. And in this time of a pandemic, isn't it true that when we make decisions concerning our own health and safety, it will directly affect anyone with whom we come in contact. The choices we make will affect them. And we learn, don't we? We learn in this trial how we are of the same family. I am your brother. You are my sister. The second truth that the table tells us is that we have our existence from the life-giving power of God. We're responsible to him. And this one is so important, isn't it? Because we can spend hours trying to reconcile within a family. We see nations spending years in diplomacy, attempting to reconcile with one another. But how much time then would we consider our reconciliation to God? You know, the Apostle Paul understood this, and he made this point in his famous sermon at the Areopagus in Athens when he called the idolatrous Athenians to seek the one true God in Acts 17. This is what he said. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. Genesis 10, you see that they should seek God 
in the hope that they might feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. All people, you see, are united to one another by both their ancestry and by their responsibility to the God who created them. Now, what's fascinating about uh, the point of view that we found in Genesis and here in Genesis 10, we saw how Moses described the flood waters going from horizon to horizon for a year. And here we see people groups in Genesis describing the geographical horizons for God's covenant people. These are, in other words, the fringes of the known world. With Moses... And the Israelites at Sinai, as they receive God's law, at the center. Now here's where it gets fascinating, you see. Because Moses is also being so pastoral. Because the focus is not only toward the edge. The extent of horizon to horizon alone in all these different peoples. But rather, it's the point of view, remember, of the observer at the center. Moses' emphasis is on you as the observer as well. All these people are united to you. And you owe your existence to the power of a life-giving God who never has stopped keeping you directly before him. So the Table of Nations underlines in its structure this point of view, this pastoral question, how therefore shall I live? Understanding my relationship to one another? How then shall I live being truly aware my life is a gift of God's? How will I live differently because of this? Because in the Table of Nations, no qualification is made. It's comprehensive. And that's the second truth we learn. So how do you measure comprehensiveness theologically? There's no rule you can take out, now is there? Well, in Genesis, you discover that it does so in the structure of the text. Now, now what do I mean by that? Well, if you consult the Bible dictionary or a study Bible, you'll add up the nations, perhaps on your own, because, well, you're kind of nerdy that way. And what you discover is that of all the nations and people groups that come from the three sons of Noah, they total 70. Seven, zero. So we have here another example of the multiples of sevens and tens and seventies that we've already seen so often in the previous chapters of Genesis. He's taking care here structurally, isn't he, to show us that God has a totality in mind, a perfect number in mind. And this is where it gets fascinating, because this pattern repeats itself in Genesis. Moses lets you know that God has a special role for the seed of Abraham, which is to bring blessing to the whole earth, these 70 nations. Because Moses tells us that before the birth of Abraham, the total number was 70. At the close of Genesis, way down the line in Genesis chapter 46, Abraham's seed numbers what? 
70. When Jacob and his sons and their descendants go down to Egypt, paralleling this perfect number of nations. Then in Exodus chapter 1, we find Genesis 9 repeated, the Israelites are fruitful and multiply. They become a threat to Egypt. And at that point, Moses, their deliverer, is born. And once again, in Exodus, at Mount Sinai, God calls the people to communion with him. Moses is commanded by God to gather representatives of the people to join him in God's presence to eat and drink. So Moses, Aaron, and get this, 70 elders go up and they eat and drink in God's presence. That perfect representative of the entire covenant people of God. And ultimately, the climax is the Lord Jesus, because Jesus himself is aware of this pattern again and again of 70, this comprehensive, perfect number. That's why we learn in Luke's Gospel how he sent out 70 disciples. Now, the text says 72, because the Greek Old Testament, the Septuagint, translates Genesis 10 here as 72, and 72 in Genesis 46, and again in Exodus. In other words, our Savior is claiming the world as its Lord and its Savior. So it's a short step, isn't it, to his great commission for the church in Matthew 28. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Now, I want to talk for a moment directly to committed Christians in local churches. Consider the comprehensiveness of the entire scriptures that our Savior captures in his bold declaration. We may wonder what this medical crisis may do for one another, for our church, for the churches around us. But you know, I think that what's happening now is what I want to call an Acts chapter 8 verse 1 season. Now what do I mean by an Acts chapter 8 verse 1 season? Well, if you go to the book of Acts, you'll find out that uh, Stephen, the deacon and first martyr, is killed by stoning in chapter 7. And a crisis fell upon the small church in Jerusalem. It looks like it was going to be wiped out. This is what Acts chapter 8 verse 1 says. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. Now it looked to human eyes at that time the church was finished. But the word of God, the promise of God, does not fail. It didn't happen. What did happen? The deacon Philip met the Ethiopian eunuch and opened the scroll of Isaiah to him, and he was saved and went home rejoicing. Barnabas visits 
and shares the gospel with the Samaritans, the hated Samaritans, and they came to confess the Lord Jesus Christ. And Peter is brought to the faithful Roman soldier Cornelius and his family, and the Holy Spirit descends upon them just as they had on the Jewish believers at Pentecost. In other words, that Acts 1 8 1 moment, that disaster for the church, became the moment when the gospel came to us, to the Gentiles. The descendants of both Ham and Japheth of Genesis chapter 10 are welcomed finally into the tents of Shem through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. So what we have in Acts 8 verse 1 is simply this, crisis, dispersal, and mission. Crisis, dispersal, and mission. My dear friends, this is our time. This is the time of the gospel. I do hope you'll seize it. Now, I want to talk a little bit about its purpose as I close. I want to speak directly to those who may be joining us who are undecided about Jesus. They may have a knowledge of him, but not a certainty of who he is and why he came. Now, the thing is, is what we found in the studies we made of Genesis chapters 1 through 9 is that a genealogy has a purpose. It's not just a comprehensive shopping list or an old-style phone book. Its listing, its numbers, its position in the narratives are selective. In other words, they have a purpose. So consider its position in understanding its purpose. And what you find is, is that genealogies act as a preface to great narratives of salvation focused on an individual. In Genesis 5, there's a genealogy that's a preface to the salvation story of Noah, the ark, and God's judgment in flood. And here, as we saw in Genesis 10, it acts as a preface to the birth and story of Abraham, through whom all the nations of the earth, the 70, will be blessed. At the end, in Genesis 46, it prefaces the story of Moses and the Exodus. We have a big clue here in Genesis 10, the reversal of a narrative, Shem the eldest, Ham and Japheth, become Japheth, Ham and Shem, in the table of nations, because Abraham, Moses, the Lord Jesus are all descendants of whom? Of Shem. Now, here's where it gets really interesting. Where in the New Testament do you find a genealogy? It's in the Gospels. It's in Matthew and Luke. Matthew chapter 1 and Luke chapter 3. Now, here's where it's amazing. In Matthew the genealogy of Jesus prefaces his birth story. Matthew begins with Abraham and concludes with Jesus, the birth of Abraham being significant, the birth of Jesus being significant. He's underlining for us, just like Moses, that the answer for the world comes through the ultimate seed of Abraham, Christ the Messiah. In Luke, the genealogy of Jesus prefaces his temptation in the wilderness and the announcement of his ministry in his hometown. 
He begins with Jesus and concludes with Adam. So Luke is underlining for us the deliverance of the world that comes through the ministry of the ultimate Moses, the last Adam, Christ the Messiah. You know, my dear friend, the Bible tells us all the way through that the world's people are divided most by their fallenness and their sin, which separates them both from God and from one another. So what is that answer for a people so united and yet so profoundly divided? It's embedded deep in Genesis, where Adam and Eve suffered division from God and from each other through their sin. It's why, today, a pandemic rages around the world. In Genesis 3.15, God responded to Satan with an oracle, a promise that one of the woman's offspring would undo his work by crushing his head. I'll put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, you shall bruise his heel. Now that's God's declaration of solution to our separation from God and from one another in the cross. God describes how Satan will strike the heel of Christ, the suffering of the cross, and how Christ will crush Satan's head through Christ's death and glorious resurrection. The only hope for Adam and Eve, who were so sundered from God and each other and from the whole world, which would in the same way be divided, is through the offspring of Adam and Eve, through the seed of Abraham, and ultimately Jesus Christ. I mean, what an amazing God we have. He works his plan out in and not apart from human history, right in the middle of politics and tragedies and surprises and schemings of fallen men and women. Our almighty God keeps his promise. You can trust him even if all of life seems out of control. Therefore, what you know now, what you've heard me talk about now, I can tell you this amazing thing. You're joining our first online worship. is not a circumstantial thing. It's because God turned all of world history to keep his promise and to bring you to this moment to provide you with the gift of salvation. I think all of us hope that you and I and those whom we love are spared serious illness or even death from COVID-19. But how more tragic will it be if we were to watch the shadow of death pass us by and not learn what the Bible teaches us about ourselves, about our Heavenly Father, and the gift of Jesus Christ that came to live the life you should have lived, to pay the penalty that was yours so that he died for you and rose again to confirm the death was paid. And all we got to do is go from a knowledge about what Jesus did to trust what Jesus did, he did for you. Amen. Thank you for listening. You can find out more about us by going to our website, 
allsoulsnj.org. There, you can support our mission by making a one-time donation or starting a podcast member subscription by clicking the Support the Show link under the Contact Us tab. You can also support us in prayer by clicking the Email Newsletter tab at the top. All Souls Anglican Church. Simple church, ancient truth, real people, new life.